Well, we are back with the second portion of Deliverance 2. In this portion of our episode, we will actually examine submission and surrender and how they are necessary for your deliverance. Surrendering to God, we admit that he is ultimately in control of everything, including our present circumstances. Surrendering helps us to let go of whatever has been holding us back from God's best for our lives. By surrendering to God, we let go of whatever has kept us from wanting God's ways first. Furthermore, with submission, submission is the humble obedience to God's will. Moreover, we are positioning ourselves under the authority who orchestrates the mission for the dispensation of grace. This is Jesus's way of just doing things. We're going to submit to Jesus's ways, his will, and his commands. Again, in John 4, verse 15, he says, those that love me, obey me. Now, there are some postures and positions that we find as we examine scripture regarding deliverance. In this segment, we will just go over a few of these postures. Deliverance bows, it prays, it recognizes authority, it calls out to Jesus, it calls out to God, it will press, it will rest, and most importantly, it obeys. So let's get started on the rest of this work. I hope you guys enjoy. Get your pen and your paper. Let's keep taking notes. We got work to do. In application to our faith walk, the enemy will try to swindle an unbeliever out of salvation. And for the believer, he tries to swindle us out of the promises and the inheritance and the long-satisfied life that God has already promised us. He's only able to play this game of swindling in our minds. In the mind, you'll see differences as he projects them. In the mind, he'll replay your histories and your mistakes. He can even get you to take hold of a thought and have you think your way into thinking your faith is not working. This is the enemy's attack on now faith as Hebrews 11 and 1 through 2 state. Because these things aren't happening right now, these histories, these past mistakes, your your hurts, or even getting you to think your way out of something before it has even happened, he tries to get you hung up on these and also hangs you up on what is not your identity. Do we make mistakes? Yes. But you are not defined by your mistakes. And furthermore, as Dr. Cindy Trim says, you can think your way into or out of any situation, including your destiny. Examine your thoughts. So 
Jesus made the selection from the Jewish community of 12 disciples. These people would be his followers and they would be the ones to really sit at his feet and listen. A key lesson that we can grab from Peter, as we all know, he's the homie who denied Jesus three times. But even with his denial, what we're able to gain for our spiritual walk with Christ is that Christians falter at times. So we all need grace. But when they return to Jesus, he forgives them and strengthens their faith. Put that back up on the board. From James and John Zebedee, also called the Sons of Thunder. From James, we learned that Christians must be willing to die for Jesus. From John, we learned that the transforming power of the love of Christ is available to all. And Andrew, will we even know Peter without Andrew? Because it was Andrew that went to get Peter because Jesus was in town. Andrew shows us that Christians are to tell other people about Jesus. And it is through our evangelizing and telling of Jesus that we're able to bring the gospel to someone who may have not heard it, the good news, and also lead them to salvation. Nevertheless, it's a decision that they will have to make on their part. And it is only by the spirit of the Lord that they're touched with the love of God that they can make the confession. From Philip, we learned that God uses our questions to teach us. From Bartholomew, Jesus respects honesty in people, even if they challenge him because of it. From Matthew, also known as Levi, Christianity is not for people who think they're already good. It is for people who know they failed and want help. Thomas teaches us, though he's labeled doubting Thomas, Thomas really teaches us that even when Christians experience serious doubts, Jesus reaches out to them to restore their faith. So you're never alone. You're never alone. From Thaddeus, son of James, Christians follow Jesus because they believe in him. They do not always understand the details of God's plan. That's going to be key for deliverance because the Hebrews didn't have all the details of God's plan. But those that follow, those that allowed themselves to be teachable and trainable when the time came, and they had now Joshua and Caleb as the successing leaders. They were carried into the promised land of Canaan. Canaan, I'm sorry. From Simon, from Simon the Zealot, we learned that if we are willing to give up our plans for the future, we can participate in Jesus's plan. And his plans are always good. His plans will prosper you and not harm you. And they give you a hope in the future. That's Jeremiah. 
from Judas Iscariot. It is not enough to be with Jesus. It is not enough to be familiar with Jesus's teachings. He, 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 he sat with Jesus nearly three and a half years and he still did not really know Jesus. Because one thing is true, to know Jesus is to love Jesus. Jesus' true followers love and obey him. So it was imperative the disciples had proper teaching so God taught them himself. The disciples would press forward with the message of the gospel of Christ and model the pattern of Jesus as he has shown them through their intimacy amidst a tumultuous and dangerous time. Following Christ's crucifixion, it was dangerous to be a Christian for years. So all three life principles of season one, intimacy with God is his highest priority and determines the impact of your life. Obey God and leave all the consequences to him. And lastly, the word of God is an immovable anchor in the times of storm. All these principles were in the, were in Jesus's mode of ministry at all times. And he passed these to his disciples as we have evidence in their epistles in the Bible, as long, along with recorded historical documents of their encounters and trials across the intercontinental terrains. Now, what is common to the success and victory of the Hebrews, Gideon, and the nation of Israel, and then Jesus with the dispensation of grace, what is common? Common to all three instances of deliverance are surrender and submission. Also, there are is the necessity to kill the giants that threaten your destiny and attempt to suppress you glorifying God, because that's what we were created for, to glorify God. Some of your giants might look like depression. A giant might look like anxiety. Someone else's giant might be a past criminal act. Another person's giant can be fear. A giant in your life can be a physical limitation that makes you different. Nevertheless, the same worth and value to God, but people treat you differently and marginalize you. A giant can look like a disease plaguing your family. Undisputable command that God gave was that when you go into the land, destroy all the giants. Do not leave any of them. So no, we're not running out to slay other people because he tells us to love thy neighbor. 
do not still do not kill but the invisible giants the giants that find their life source in darkness in wickedness and in evil the thoughts the seeds of these actions the giant of racism the invisible giants they're open season it's open season for slaying those giants so over the course of the next week between now and when we meet again I want you to really do self-examination and it's going to take being prayerful and sitting with God in his word and opening yourself up to it because he wants to remove that giant. Yes, there'll be a part that you do. Your part is going to be being submitted to him, reading his word, renewing your mind, praying, building yourself up in your most holy faith through praying into He's, he's going to give you what to do, but he'll do the surgery and he'll do his part. So what is surrender? Allaboutfollowingjesus.org says that surrendering to God, we admit that he is ultimately in control of everything, including our present circumstances. Surrendering helps us to let go of whatever he has been, I'm sorry. Surrendering, surrendering helps us to let go of whatever has been holding us back from God's best for our lives. And by surrendering to God, we let go of whatever has kept us from wanting God's ways first. Now, typically, I will not use a Wikipedia source. However, the Wikipedia website says that to surrender in spirituality and religion means that a believer completely gives up his or her own will and subjects his thoughts, ideas, and deeds to the will and teaching of a higher power. Willful acceptance and yielding to a dominating force and their will. Now, if I create a Christian definition of it, it's going to be to surrender spiritually, to give up his or her own will and subject his or her thoughts, ideas, and deeds to the will and teaching of the Most High God to Jesus Christ, to Christ Jesus, to Elohim, to Jehovah Tassaba, to Jehovah Sukkanu, to Jehovah Nisi, to Jehovah Jireh, and willfully accept, yielding to his dominant force and will. Now, the Strong's Dictionary says that submission is humble obedience to another's will, God's. Moreover, you're positioning yourself under the authority, orchestrating, or calling the shots for the mission. And 
for the dis dispensation of grace is Jesus's way of doing things. So surrender and submission puts forth that there's a position and a posture for deliverance. Deliverance is not dependent upon the length or the duration of the condition, nor is seeming finiteness, because with God, all things are possible. Position and posture of deliverance. The first posture, and these are just a few examples. I don't have all of them, but there were key ones that uh, my eyes were focused to or those that were brought back up into my remembrance. One of the postures of deliverance is bowing. In Matthew 8, we meet with Jesus, a leper. So if we want to grab our Bibles again, we're going to do quite a bit of Bible work in this section before we get ready to close. And Matthew is at the front of the New Testament. Again, I will be reading out of the Amplified. Matthew 8, 1 says, when Jesus came down from the mountain, large crowds followed him and a leper, a leper would be someone with blotched skin. They would be oozing, and festering with um, pus and blood due to the open skin wounds. Um, by the standard of the 613 laws of Moses, as God handed them down to him at Mount Sinai, a leper is considered unclean. Not only were they unclean, they were unclean because leprosy was a contagious disease that affects the skin, the mucosal membranes and nerves, causing discoloration and lumps on the skin. Um, it could even in severe cases cause disfigurement and deformities. And from a YouTube that I watched on the theologian, the great theologian Ravi Zacharias. Leopards were subject to, um, oh my goodness. Because of certain conditions in certain countries, um, if I recall it correctly, 
either he observed or um, he did more research and found that leopards would be, um, oh my goodness. They would essentially become a source of feeding for rats. And the rats would gnaw on them as they tried to sleep or rest. Because of the open exposure of flesh. And so, you know, being a leopard, it carried with it being ostracized, marginalized, stigmatized. And if you're unclean, you couldn't go into the the public. You couldn't go in, in and about with people. Being a leopard was isolation. So the leper came up to Jesus and bowed down before him saying, now Jesus, we, we have to remember Jesus is of the priest order. So Jesus not only knows all 613 laws of Moses, he keeps them. But one thing about Jesus, when it comes to a good work, he'll break a rule. The leper bowed down before him. And that, that's the posture. We're talking about the posture of bowing for deliverance. And, and bowing is showing reverent respect for an authority. Here, the leper is showing reverent respect for God. And said, Lord, if you are willing. You are able to make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched him saying, I am willing, be cleansed. Immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see that you tell no one about this but go show yourself to the priest for inspection and present the offering that Moses commanded as a testimony, evidence to them of your healing. And Jesus went into Capernaum. A satyrian came up to him and we'll get to this next one just shortly. Or we're going to move to another one. We'll, we'll just go ahead and hit this one as well because Another posture of deliverance is begging. So continuing on. As Jesus went into Capernaum, a satyrion came up to him, begging him for help. I just heard the song in my head. I ain't too proud to beg. I ain't too proud to beg. You can't be too proud to beg. And saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed with intense and terrible tormenting pain. I just want to stop right there. If you don't have someone else in your life that will go beg God on your behalf, you probably need to start reassessing your circle. Amen? The centurion said that my servant is lying at home paralyzed with intense 
and terrible, tormenting pain. He even described the situation. He described the condition. I've already said that deliverance is not dependent upon the length, the duration, or what's going on in the condition. Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied to him, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man subject to authority of a higher rank with soldiers subject to me. And I say to one go, and he goes, and to another come, and he comes, and to my slave do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those who were following him, I tell you truthfully, I have not found such great faith as this with anyone in Israel. I say to you that many Gentiles will come from east and west and will sit down to feast at the table and enjoy God's promises with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven because they accepted me as savior. While the sons and heirs of the kingdom, the descendants of Abraham, who will not recognize me as Messiah, will be thrown out into the outer darkness in that place which is farthest removed from the kingdom. There will be weeping in sorrow and pain and grinding of teeth in distress and anger. Then Jesus said to the centurion, go, it will be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was restored to health that very hour. Here we see the position of deliverance is a position of submission. The centurion, though an authoritative figure in his own right, he humbled himself, wasn't too proud to beg, and was willing to get under the authority of a higher power. He recognized that Jesus was a higher authority. The situation with his servant was well far beyond what he was able to do, but he came to the man who could do all things. So posture, deliverance will bow. Posture, it will beg. Position, it will submit. It will obey. Last week, we were in 2 Kings chapters 18 and 19, where we discussed Hezekiah. Hezekiah not only had an internal attack that he needed to be delivered from, for he was... Um, gravely sick and the word says that he was to put his house in order start making his final arrangements and at the same time there was an external attack on the kingdom but hezekiah prayed so a posture of deliverance is that it will kneel it will pray Turning now to Mark 5, we'll hit two more 
positions and postures of deliverance. And then following Mark 5, we will hit Mark 10 and John 5, and then we'll just do a little bit of page flipping to an Old Testament book. So beginning Mark 5, verse 22, we'll really go verse 22 through 34 before this first portion. We're going to do 22 through 34. That's Mark 5, 22 through 34. It's just there. So it says one of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up and seeing him, Jesus, fell at his feet. We can mark down that Jairus falling at his feet is like bowing and begged anxiously. So he didn't just bow, he bowed and begged. Begged anxiously with him saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. It's, it's something about a father's love for his daughter. And Jesus went with him. And a large crowd followed him and pressed in around him from all sides. A woman in the crowd has suffered from a hemorrhage for 12 years. And I'm reading still out of my Amplified. And had endured much suffering at the hands of many physicians. She has spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but instead had become worse. She had heard reports about Jesus and she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his outer robe. For she thought, if I just touch his clothing, I will get well. Immediately, her flow of blood was dried up and she felt in her body and knew without any doubt that she was healed of her suffering. Immediately, Jesus recognizing in himself that power had gone out from him, turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? His disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing in around you from all sides and you ask, who touched me? Still, he kept looking around to see the woman who had done it. And the woman, though she was afraid and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before him, bowing again and told him the whole truth. Then he said to her, Daughter, your faith, your personal trust and confidence in me has restored you to health. Go in peace and be permanently healed from your suffering. In this portion of scripture, we see that a position of deliverance will press 
It doesn't just stand by believing. It will press in to take hold of the miracle. So there'll be some things that God may instruct or command you to do, which is oppress. It's going to be difficult. You're going to fight against resistance. It's like trying to run against the wind or trying to row a boat against um, contrary waves. But you have it in you to press and obtain. Now, if we continue down in Mark 5, because we have to remember at 22, it was Jairus who had come to Jesus, grabbing Jesus so that he could come heal his daughter. We're still in the same story. We're, we're still in the same um, transition of movement with Jesus. Jesus is on his way to Jairus's daughter, but because the woman had faith and press, she, she grabbed her miracle. Continuing on, verse 35. While he was still speaking, some people came from the synagogue official's house saying to Jairus, your daughter has died. Why bother the teacher any longer? Overhearing what was being said, Jesus said to the synagogue official, do not be afraid. Only keep on believing in me and my power. And he allowed no one to go with him as witnesses except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. Sometimes you just need to lock in with a circle who believes the way you believe. Let them be the witnesses. Because while you'll be praying, it could be someone praying against it, which you're praying for. No time for that. And he allowed no one to go with him as witnesses except Peter and James and John, the brother of James, the sons of Zebedee or sons of thunder. They came to the house of the synagogue official and he looked with understanding at the uproar and commotion and people loudly weeping and wailing and mourning. When Jesus had gone in, he said to them, why make a commotion and weep? The child is not died, but is sleeping. They began laughing scornfully at him because they knew the child was dead. But he made them all go outside and took along the child's father and mother and his own three companions and entered the room where the child was. Taking the child's hand, he said tenderly to her, Talitha, come, which translated from Aramaic means, little girl, I say to you, get up. The little girl immediately got up and began to walk, for she was 12 years old. Now, we have a woman suffering from an issue of blood 12 years, and we have a 12-year-old child resurrected. No one can steal your miracle. And immediately they who witnessed the child's resurrection were overcome with great wonder and utter amazement. He gave strict orders that no one should know about this. And he told them to give her something to eat. Last portion of scripture that we've gone over 
Jairus one recognizes authority. Deliverance must recognize the sovereignty and the authority of God. Furthermore, it gives us inclination that God's timing is perfect. Though they were stopped with the woman with the issue of blood and probably even slowed down because of the large crowd pressing in around Jesus, God was not delayed. Later in Acts, particularly in Acts 5, 12 through 16, um, and this is following the crucifixion of Christ, at the least, people would have Peter's shadow fall upon the sick, laid on beds and mats that were brought into the street. The verse continues to say that many miracles and healings were wrought at the hands of the apostles. And it finalizes with this statement, and all were healed. So miracles remove steps out of the process for the accomplishment of God's will, ways, purposes to change your perspective of him. In Mark 10 now, flipping to verse 46 through 52, we meet blind Bartimaeus. Then they came to Jericho. And as he, Jesus was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a large crowd, a blind beggar, Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, was sitting beside the road as was his custom. When Bartimaeus heard, remember he's blind, when Bartimaeus heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout and say, Jesus, son of David, Messiah, have mercy on me. Many sternly rebuked him, telling him to keep still and be quiet. But he kept on shouting out all the more, son of David, Messiah, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called the blind man, telling him, take courage, get up. He is calling for you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said, what do you want me to do for you? The blind man said to him, Rabbi, my master. Let me regain my sight. Jesus said to him, go. Your faith and your confident trust in my power has made you well. Immediately he, his sight, immediately he regained his sight and began following Jesus on the road. Blind Bartimaeus shows us that disturbing everyone in the area with shouts, you should not let anyone hinder your calling out or crying out to the Lord. We're going to actually go to Ruth instead first. That was, my, that was my surprise for you guys. So we're going to turn back to the Old Testament to Ruth. 
And if you're like me, the Old Testament is so thick that I go to the front of the Bible to find out what page it starts on because I'm still learning the order of scripture. So we're going to get there together. We have a few more minutes, but I believe we'll be right on time. Oh my goodness, I know how to read. Where is it? There it is. And if anyone else is struggling, Ruth is right behind Judges and before 1 Samuel. Oh, 24. All right, we're going to go to Ruth uh, chapter 3, and we'll be at verse five and we'll find a stopping place here um this is after ruth's mother-in-law naomi had given her instructions to wash and anoint herself with olive oil and put on her best clothes and go down to the threshing floor where a man who was a kinsman of naomi's could redeem their possessions. Again, there was um, ordinances and laws for how land was to be managed. And for the most part, the land, the ownership, the possession had to be of a male figure. And in order to not be destitute in the society at that time, um, it was a male family member or a husband um that pretty much provided for the well-being of the family per se as far as making sure there's a home that they have food and um without such connections um life could be difficult during that time So Naomi had given Ruth these commands so that she would be able to um, coordinate the deliverance of Ruth and Naomi who had now been widowed. But because Ruth was still in her youth and because of, again, societal laws, Ruth could remarry and it needed to be a close kinsman for the redemption of their possession. So restoration and redemption are also um, portions of deliverance, which we'll hit on eventually. But for right now, we're still focused on position and posture. So Ruth answered Naomi, and said, I will do everything that you say. So she went down to the threshing floor and did as her mother-in-law had told her. When Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was happy, he went to lie down at the end of the stack of grain. Then Ruth came secretly and uncovered his feet and lay down. In the middle of the night, the man was startled and he turned over and found a woman lying at his feet. So he said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your maid. Spread the hem of your garment over me, for you are a close relative and redeemer. Then he said, 
May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made your last kindness better than the first, for you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. Now, my daughter, do not be afraid. I will do for you whatever you ask, since all my people in the city know that you are a woman of excellence. It is true that I am your close relative and redeemer. However, there is a relative closer to you than I. Spend the night here, and in the morning, if he will redeem you, fine. Let him do it. But if he does not wish to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but got up before anyone could recognize another. Boaz said, do not let it be known that the woman came to the threshing floor last night. And he also said, give me the shawl you are wearing and hold it out. So Ruth held it and he measured out six measures of barley into it and placed it on her. And she went into the city. I'll stop there because the end of the story is that Boaz is able to redeem their possessions from Naomi's family. Ruth marries Boaz and a son is born. From this son, from this deliverance, from being restored and redeemed, we also get the stem from which Jesse will then bear David, from which Jesus would also come out of Judah. So it's important that we study our Bibles. We get the Messiah coming from this deliverance. In Ruth, we find that sometimes your deliverance is to get you to the next day, or maybe it's to get you to the end of the week or Friday. I know that my mama's best advice and even the Lord's commands to me when um, I have an unsolicited surprising attack or I'm just having a womanly hormonal meltdown is to take a nap, rest, is a position and posture of deliverance. Now, as we begin to wrap up, because I will not hold you guys too much longer, I just want, we're almost done. In John 5, Verses 2 through 10, we will meet Jesus at the pool of Bethsaida. Now in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate, there is a pool which is called in Hebrew, Jewish, Aramaic, Bethsaida. Having five porticos or porches, alcoves, colonnades. And these porticos lay a great number of people who were sick, blind, lame, withered, waiting for the stirring of the water. For an angel of the Lord went down into the pool at appointed seasons and stirred up the water. The first one to go in after the water was stirred was healed of his diseases. 
there was a certain man there who had been ill for 38 years. When Jesus noticed him lying there, helpless, knowing that he had been in that condition for a long time, he said to him, do you want to get well? Some people are actually comfortable in their lame position. Some people will get comfortable being broke. They will get comfortable in brokenness, comfortable in their bitterness, comfortable in their unforgiveness, not knowing how much of a hindrance and that de deliverance is available to them. The invalid answered, Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am coming to get it into it myself, someone else steps down ahead of me. Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your pallet and walk. Immediately, the man was healed and recovered his strength and picked up his pallet and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews kept saying to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and you are not permitted to pick up your pallet because it is unlawful. He answered them, the man who healed me and gave me back my strength was the one who said to me, pick up your pallet and walk. This lame man, 38 years, respected the authority of Jesus, even when it came to the authorities of society. But he also, for his deliverance, had to obey. Joshua obeyed God with the unconventional instructions to conquer Jericho. And Gideon obeyed God and delivered Israel with just 300 choice men. Now, we just read John 5 those verses regarding the lame man at the pool of Bethesda, at Beth, Bethsaida, I'm sorry. And, and I want you guys to open your mics because we're just going to examine scripture for this process. What did Jesus remove out of the process for this miracle? The law? I'll take that. Because you are correct. Give me one more. We're sitting at the pool of Bethsaida. What did Jesus remove out of the process for this miracle? And, and I'll give you a hint. Because again, a miracle... God is able to speed things up and remove things out of the process. I'll give you 20 more seconds. Go to verse 7. Because all the lame people are sitting at the pool of Bethsaida. What are they waiting for? The water to be moved. 
the water to be troubled. So Jesus removed that out of the equation. They know they didn't need the troubling of the water. They didn't need an in-between between them and God because now Jesus is on the scene. They get Jesus directly. That's what we see here. Now, Jesus could have still given the instruction and the command. And if this lame man of 38 years had not obeyed because he had become complacent and comfortable in his position, that lame man would still been on his bed. He wouldn't have been healed. He wouldn't have the mobility. He wouldn't have picked up his bed and walked. So obedience, being submitted to the authority, he surrendered what he thought he needed for his miracle. He no longer carried that thought, that ideology that he needed the water troubled by an angel. When Jesus told him to pick up his bed, get up, pick up your bed and walk, those were three different commands. The first one was to get up. The second was to pick up your bed and as Pastor Keon said, so that no one else would trip over it and fall into your condition. And the third one was to walk. He had three instructions, three commands, and he received them as a direct order as it coming from an authoritative figure. He heard, he listened with the intent to do and obeyed. First Peter 5, 5 through 11, Paul gives words to the church regarding submission to God. It says, likewise, you younger men of lesser rank and experience be subject to your elders, seek their counsel. And all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, tie on the servant's apron, for God is opposed to the proud, the disdainful, the presumptuous, and he defeats them, but he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, set aside self-righteous pride, so that he may exalt you to a place of honor in his service at the appropriate time. Casting all your cares, all your anxieties, all your worries, and all your concerns once and for all on him. For he cares about you with deepest affection and watches over you very carefully. Be sober, well-balanced and self-disciplined. Be alert and cautious at all times. That enemy of yours, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, fiercely hungry, seeking someone to devour. But resist him. Be firm in your faith. Against his attack, rooted, established, immovable, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being experienced by your brothers and sisters throughout the world. You do not suffer alone. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who imparts his blessing and favor, who called you to his own eternal glory in Christ, will himself complete, confirm, strengthen, and establish you, making you what you ought to be. To him be dominion, power, authority, sovereignty forever and ever. Amen. So as we close, I don't know where the Lord, the Holy Spirit is guiding you 
in your Bible study. But it is worth noting that there are kings who had to pray for deliverance. Jesus prayed for it in the garden of Gethsemane, begging the father to let this cup pass me by. David begged in the valley of the shadow of death. He further does another begging, but also a declaration and a building up of confidence in Psalm 91. Psalm 91 is such a prayer of protection, covering and care of the Lord. It's also wrapped around deliverance of the Lord. Now, as we wrap up, I do want to read the prayer of one of the kings of Judah. And it is the prayer of Manasseh. It reads, O Lord Almighty, thou art in heaven, you God of our fathers of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and of their righteous seed who have made heaven and earth with all the ornament thereof who have bound the sea by the word of your commandment you have shut up the deep and sealed it by your terrible and glorious name whom all things fear yes tremble before your power where the majesty of your glory can't be born and the anger of your threatening towards sinners is importable. Your merciful promise is unmeasurable and unsearchable for you are the Lord most high of great compassion, passion, patient and abundant in mercy and repent of bringing evils upon men. You, O oh Lord, according to your great goodness, have promised repentance and forgiveness to those who have sinned against you. And of your infinite mercies have appointed repentance to sinners that they may be saved. You, therefore, O oh Lord, that are the God of the just, have not appointed repentance to the just, to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, which have not sinned against you, but you have appointed repentance to me that am a sinner. For I have sinned above the number of the sands of the sea. My transgressions are multiplied, O Lord. My transgressions are multiplied and I am not worthy to behold and see the height of heaven for the multitude of my iniquities. I am bowed down with many iron bands that I can't lift up my head by reason of my sins. Neither have I any respite, for I have provoked your wrath and done that which is evil before you. I didn't do your will, neither did I keep your commandments. I have set up abominations and have multiplied detestable things. Now, therefore, I bow the knee of my heart, imploring you of grace. I have sinned, O Lord, I have sinned and I acknowledge my iniquities, but I humbly implore you to forgive me, O Lord, forgive me and destroy me not with my iniquities. Be not angry with me forever by reserving evil for me, neither condemn me into the lower parts of the earth. For you, O Lord, are the God of those who repent, and in me you will show all your goodness. For you will save me that am unworthy according to your great mercy. And I will praise you forever all the days of my life. For all the army of heaven sings your praise and yours is the glory forever and ever. Amen.
So Father, in the name of the Son, Jesus, we just thank you that we were able to come together again in your presence to hear the word of the Lord as you have delivered it on to me. Thank you, Father, that you have already set up and made the way even when we don't see a way. Thank you for being the God of our deliverance. Thank you for being the God of omniscience, the God of mercy, compassion, forgiveness, and redemption. It is to you we give all the glory. Now on to him who is able to do exceedingly magnificent, unimaginable, wondrous works in our lives. We thank you, we praise you, we glorify your holy name. To you be all the adoration, all the power and dominion. In Jesus' name, amen. To the end part of the Undaunted Devotional. by Christine Kane, she continues that unresolved issues in the soul cause many people to miss out on using their spiritual gifts to their full potential. Soul weakness is an Achilles heel that will eventually take them out their race. In order to have a healthy soul, you have to learn to deal with unresolved issues in our past for a healthy soul life and therefore a healthy future. So I want to challenge everyone to meditate and respond to this moment of reflection that asks, are there any unresolved soul issues weighing you down and potentially keeping you from destiny? <laughs>